When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's what everybody, we are back, and today's episode is Helping Junior Developers Succeed. Just like the title suggests, we're going to be talking about what we define as success, what the current landscape is for junior developers, and what you can do, such as mentorships, code reviews, or portfolio reviews, and a lot of other things to help a junior developer in your life succeed, or even help yourself. You might be the person that is the junior developer. You might go and try to seek out a code review from somebody or say, hey, can someone take a look at my portfolio? Those type of things. So if this sounds interesting to you, you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon. Leave a review rating on your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. Now, Mike, the first thing we need to do in this episode, obviously, is define what success is, at least for this episode. Success is different for everybody. So for the it's almost like this episode's control. What are we defining as success for a junior developer in this episode. That's a, that's a really good way to put it. And you kind of nailed it from the other perspective of like, this is an episode that's directed towards people helping developers succeed. But if you are a junior developer trying to break into the industry, I think it is a very valuable episode to listen to because you will learn how to ask the right questions to get the help that you need as well. So again, Matt mentioned it. I just wanted to reiterate that point. For, uh, so don't stop listening to it. Uh, this is going to be a very valuable episode for both sides of that sphere. But let's define success because I think if we're going to put succeed in the title, we need some way to you know baseline that. In this particular case for a junior developer, I think success boils down to getting a job, right? So obviously, if you're a junior developer and you are trying to get a job, that will be a form of success. But the other thing is, is that you want to get a job that will also allow you to learn and grow into the next level of your job, right? Because we're junior developers, and I say junior developer in quotes because it's kind of a frowned upon term every once in a while uh, because you don't know if you want to call yourself that or not. Like a lot of times, if you get a job, you want to drop the junior developer title right away uh, because now you're a developer. But realistically, like as you get that job, you need to grow into your next role, which would be like intermediate or S2 or whatever, however you want to call it. All the different, all different companies call their developers all different things. But in reality, it's just you are able to solve more problems now, right? And there's a lot of discrepancies in, in different jobs that will allow you to grow or will actually detriment the process. And we're going to talk about that in this episode. Well, I do want to actually just touch on like, it's almost the definition or the label, I guess, of junior developer. And it is weird because I would say that I'm a junior developer, even though I've been in the space for a while, like approaching 10 years, I'm a junior Svelte developer. Very much so. Don't really know what's going on too much. I'm a junior like PHP developer and stuff like that, but I'm not a junior when it comes to getting the hosting working. I'm not a junior when it comes to getting DNS working and troubleshooting DNS problems and email problems and those type of things. I'm not a junior in getting you set up. I'm not a junior in understanding the components like, oh, here we have a WordPress site. It's under a subdomain, which comes from this. I'm not a junior in any of those aspects. I'm not a junior in Webflow. I'm not a junior in vanilla either, vanilla code. HTML, CSS, JS, although I have said my JS is a little rusty just because I've been working in WordPress and stuff like that. But I'm not a junior in a lot of things, but I am a junior in a lot of things. And so some people might be like, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But then if someone's like, hey, we had a problem with email, everyone else that, quote unquote, did know what they were talking about in this felt conversation might be like, well, I don't know. And I'll be like, oh, that sounds like your DMARC's not working, you know, and it's something that someone else might have no idea. Um, And, it, and so it, it is a little bit weird in that in that respect because you might feel like you're a fool in one area and you're not a fool in another but like we're all fools in some sort of area like i can't be a svelte a react uh a, you know a server expert like all perfectly all at the same time and up to date it ain't gonna happen yeah so that, it's a really good point that you brought up so 
when I say junior developer, I'm not talking about a specific like vertical of developer, like you're a junior in React, but you're an expert in view or something like that. Um, when, when you conquer kind of the one vertical of figuring out how to solve problems using whatever technology, right? That's when you kind of evolve, in my opinion, or step, take that next step. A junior developer in my mind, and this is going to differ across different people, so I don't want to offend anyone, or I don't know how this would offend, but from how I see it is they need help to come up with a solution to any problem, essentially. So if they're given a task such as, can you create a, uh, a I, I don't, I don't even know what a good task would be, but can you create the, a the form? same thing I'm creating in Svelte, the the income, the passive sure, income passive, project, passive income project, right? So if you, I need you to create a a way for me to track my income, my passive income, break it down by tasks, so like by different types of income. So I'll have like uh, a passive income coming from dividends, I'll have passive income coming from course sales, I'll have passive income coming from uh, interest stuff like that, like. Ability for me to input all my different types of income, how much I'm making every month, and have an output of how like the total I'm making every month from all of my different incomes. And then maybe like a breakdown of like what I make per year. Simple enough task, start to finish. A lot of questions need to be asked to get to the final product there, right? And I don't care what technology you use. Can you do that task that I've just outlined to you in a very simplistic way? And the first step of that task is not to go down and sit down and figure out what technical code you're going to be writing. It's can you ask the right questions for the next step? Can you pick the technology based on all the requirements that you've gathered? And then can you finish it and deploy it and show me that you have a finished product? Now, it's not <laughs> – yes – that might seem complicated because there's a lot of moving parts, like the deployment part might not be something that's in the scope of a junior developer or even up above a junior developer sometimes, right? Because it could be deployed in a million different ways. But I still think that a developer should know at least the basics of every part. And there's so many tools out there that can allow you to easily deploy, whether it be just through FTP with the HTML, JavaScript and CSS files or through a continuous integration process with GitHub. Right, like just throwing on throwing on GitHub and having it work with GitHub Pages or Vercel or Netlify, right? Linking or even up. even like the more classic, which some more advanced things do, where they literally say there's a maintenance window and they pull the site down, and then they up upgrade it in in some sort of private area, or literally they might delete the site and upload the new version or something like that. I, I don't know who knows what's going on behind closed doors. Correct. So anyway, the 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 idea again, I, we've sidetracked a little bit, but the idea is, can you solve a problem? With whatever technology stack, can you do it in a somewhat efficient way so that it's not like, you know, burning everyone's computers down and not costing the, you know, the uh, end user any money and not costing the person that like asked the task an exorbitant amount of money because you're running it on 15 different servers or whatever in, in a reasonable amount of time, like not a reasonable amount of time, in a reasonable time frame and a certain, you know, code quality aspect to it. It doesn't have to be perfect in any way, shape or form. If you can do that in whatever technology, you are not a junior developer in my eyes. Okay. A junior developer needs to have their hand held in many different stages of that process. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That I want to say that very clearly. That's where you are. If you're at that point, that's where you are. And that's okay. Because this is, that's the step you have to take to get to the next step. And that's what I want to talk about in this episode is like, how can we, and we as in like Matt and I and other developers that have gotten jobs and have worked in the field and are working in the field, help other junior developers get to success, getting a job, learning to grow in that job. So I want to outline the current landscape a little bit because I'm making this episode in a very timely manner and a timely, like for a very specific reason right now. There's a lot of layoffs happening. There's a ton, like Amazon laid off record amounts, Microsoft, Google, everyone laid off a ton of people. There is hiring freezes. So all these fan companies, the ones that are laying off the mass amount of people are usually in a hiring freeze as well, right? And because of that, it's a highly competitive environment, not just for juniors, but for seniors and intermediate developers as well. 
I'm not saying this to scare anyone. I'm just laying out the facts, like what's happening right now in the industry. The highly competitive environment is not, is not saying that you can't get a job. There are still tons of people being hired and there are still a ton of open positions. Look at your local job boards. They are not closed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's still people being hired on a consistent basis. There's just less than there were two years ago with the hiring sprees that were happening during the uh, pandemic because all of these online services needed to have more people because they were making a lot more money. Now this is kind of starting to curb a little bit down. So now it's going to regular levels. There's a little bit of that turnover happening that maybe wouldn't have happened if there wasn't this crazy, you know, uh, influx of hiring before that. So it's a little bit different this time than usual, but overall there's still opportunities to be had. And if you're savvy and if you're persistent, as a junior developer, you can still get break into the industry at this very moment. But you have to understand that you're like, there are challenges to, to uh, that you're going to be facing. Right. And the landscape, not only in the terms of hiring has changed, the landscape in terms of compensation has changed as well. For my, you know, early research and just talking to a couple of people that just got hired, it's looking like there's going to be lower starting salaries. So you're, you're probably not going to be making six figures in your first junior developer job, which was what was happening like a year or two ago. Okay. It was an anomaly. That part of the industry was an anomaly. Okay. Usually you just like any other job, you would be hired at your level. You would be paid like a competitive salary. You're not going to be making peanuts. You're going to be making still decent money, but you'll have the opportunity to grow. Okay. So set your expectations a little bit lower than what we were told two or three years ago, and you'll be fine. The other thing that's again on the rise, and again, because of the landscape is internships. People are starting to talk about internships more. Now, more, more so paid internships, not unpaid, but internships in general will have a lower starting salary. Okay. So they'll, they'll usually be very, um, very like, you know, entry level, uh, call, like they're looking for college level education, entry level competitive jobs that aren't going to have a crazy, you know, you'll be able to live in a, a huge city salary. Like in internships and, and, and co-ops, because uh, sometimes in Canada, an internship or oftentimes an internship is unpaid, uh, which is not, I mean, I guess there would be some companies hiring for unpaid internships, I'm sure. I'm sure maybe there not, are. Maybe not I'm for sure profits and stuff like that, or even just regular, regular companies, to be yeah. honest. But it's not very common in this space. It's it, it's becoming, it's become less and less common, honestly, which is great. I think, you know, low paid internships, much better than unpaid internships, if, if that makes sense, obviously. Um, so that's where the shift is kind of going, right? So that's where our current landscape is. It's a little bit rough, but totally doable. And the next thing I do want to talk about is what can you do? And again, you is referring to a developer that's in a job right now and is looking around and being like, wow, this is getting harder for people. Like it's, it's starting to become really difficult. So I want to be able to offer up maybe a service. Maybe I want to just offer up my time. I want to help other people around me succeed in the way that I was helped or the way that I wasn't helped maybe even, right? Uh, like a, a friend of, that's just getting started type of thing. Correct. Yeah. There's tons of that happening. Like someone, people reach out to me pretty consistently being like, hey, uh, I'm thinking about making a career change at the tech. What should I do? And I'll give them a spiel of some sorts of like, you know, here's here's what I want you to do. And a lot of it kind of gauges on like the fact that, hey, I need you to put in the effort before I can really step in and start mentoring you. Okay. And the first thing I am going to talk about right now is mentorship. And mentorship is something that's really important, but also an extreme time sink. That's what I want to kind of really hammer home. It's not something that you should just offer haphazardly because you you have to understand that a lot of people, when they think that they're getting mentored, they think they're going to get you access to you on a pretty consistent basis. It could be an hour a day. It could be a couple hours a week, whatever. But even a couple hours a week can add up. Trust me. It can be draining because a lot of questions that they're going to be asking are very simple questions, something that you might want to urge that push back on them with. And it's going to be a co constant conversation. Mentorship is not easy on both the mentee and the mentor. 
Okay, so it's something that you really need to think about before you offer up this kind of service or just offer it up to a friend even. It is, on the other hand, very important for junior developers. I Junior developers that I've talked to that have succeeded recently have had some mentorship. They have found a friend or they were part of communities and they were able to prove that they were I don't want to say worthy, but they were able to prove that, hey, they're, they're putting in the effort and people have taken notice of that and saw how they're growing and have gone in and mentored them up and helped them to, you know, get to their first job. And mentorship can include many, many of the things that we're going to be talking about up after this as well. So it can include stuff like code reviews. It'll include one-on-one sessions where you kind of just get, dig into each other's brains. It's going to include pair programming. Mentorship can include... um portfolio creation. So helping someone create their portfolio. It can include guidance in job application, like a lot of different things kind of gets put up into mentorship. Well, I I do actually want to touch on that part as well, because mentorships oftentimes are informal, meaning that like, for example, like I'm doing some Svelte stuff, I'm knocking the rust off my JS knowledge. So there's a couple like new things in JS that people couldn't do when I was last like in the environment, or maybe I just never did. It never applied to me. And so, like, for example, you, Mike, you're mentoring me in that, excuse me, in that stuff, because you're saying, oh, like, like, maybe engineer it like this. Like, a lot of my questions are like, hey, like, I could, uh, I could do this the way I used to do it. And I know how to do that. But I want to know if that's how I'm supposed to be engineering it, whether it's with Svelte or with vanilla, because I'm doing a vanilla project right now as well. And it's. So I'm I'm like, you're helping me there, but you're not necessarily kind of doing the quote unquote official things that people might say where like, you're not being like, Hey, like let, let's get that job. Like let's get that resume fixed up and let's do this and that. So it, it like mentorship can be something as easy as like, Oh, Oh crap. Like I'm having trouble with X. I'm going to go talk to bill. I'm going to go talk to Mike. In my case, I'm going to go talk to Jim. I'm going to talk to whomever. And then I'm going to talk to that person and get some help with it. It could just be something just, just that simple. And there's no time limit on mentorship either, where it's like that person mentored me. And some people say, Oh, that person mentored me for a summer. That person mentored me for a week. I feel like sometimes people think that mentorship is something where they stick around with the person for like 15 years or something. And that's not necessarily the case. It's like, literally we have a a friend that we, that uh, I like, we're going to be talking to soon or someone in the industry we're going to be talking to soon. And I have some questions about their particular, um, uh, aspect on the industry. I'm not going to divulge it, but like aspect on the industry. And if they walk me through it, that's a little bit of mentorship. Yes, that's exactly right. And again, it varies greatly. Like all the different kinds of mentorship you can get and receive and give very huge, like the variation is huge, but let's say like traditional mentorship is like one-to-one and you do start to finish to try to get them to find a job that can be a huge time sink. So my kind of recommendation for people that are looking to mentor is try to, at least when you're starting out, only do one person at a time. If you're mentoring five different developers at the same time in different parts of their journey, it's going to get jumbled in your brain. I've tried it and I failed. I'm going to tell you that right now. Maybe other people are better at it. But my recommendation is focus on one person. If you can help one person, that's already doing better than most other people in the industry. Okay. And it's going to be a huge dividend. As you get better at it, sure, you can might be able to take on more people or whatever. That's fine, depending on how you want to divvy up your time. Because again, if you're a developer working in the industry, you don't have that much time to give out. And a lot of times mentorship is free. Like that's, that's kind of, it's a reciprocity thing in the sense that like you're mentoring someone because you want the industry to succeed as a whole. That's more the mindset. Now, there are paid mentorships. There's paid mentorship services. There's paid mentorships all over the place. I don't fully recommend this for both the mentee and the mentor. I'm sure there's some great ones out there. I'm not saying that they're all terrible, but finding that one where it's worthwhile to pay and also having that pressure on you as a mentor in that service to to actually do the work can be detrimental to the mentorship process. Again, I was actually going to say, like, mm-hmm. maybe those are best suited. This is just an assumption. Like, I don't know if this is right, but like, maybe those are well suited for people that are like very introverted. 
who like even if they're in a discord and they're asking questions here and there, like it's just not their instinct to like be like, oh, I'll become buddies with this person. And then maybe it'll expand from there and I'll start DMing them on discord, you know, through the natural progression of becoming like a friend and then get mentorship even like not through a service, but just through kind of chatting with this person over time. If that's not the person's first instinct and they don't have any friends that are uh, that are like higher up in the developer knowledge sphere, I suppose, then it might make sense for them to be like, OK, I'll go to a service because the service, I would assume, would hire people that are naturally sociable and they're going to be ready to mentor someone that may be a little antisocial. That's a really good counterpoint to my argument. I'll tell you that. Like, I, I think that that's a solid reason to have paid mentorship services and to use them if you're just don't know, even know where to start and you're you are an introvert that you don't want to go through the process of finding out. Because just to figure out where you can find a mentor or, you know, going through that process can be very, very difficult. And not everyone, unfortunately, is going to find a mentor. And I think a majority won't. The reality is the majority won't because of what I mentioned before, that the fact that it is a very difficult one-on-one relationship that is a huge time sink for a working developer, okay? So maybe there is some value there, but I'm just saying like, I, I found the the most success I've seen with mentorship is when it's just two people shooting the shit and one person just really wants to ha- help another person. That's the best version of mentorship I've seen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, next thing here, and again, all the rest of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about is technically going to be part of mentorship as well, but these are separate things that you can kind of get from other people. Most of these other things I, I would say also is a form of micro mentorship which we'll talk about a little bit in the future. Code reviews. Code reviews are really, really key when you're first starting out as a developer. This is something that myself personally, I did not get enough of. And I probably still don't, honestly. I need to put myself out there a little bit more. But I I am trying to get more and more code reviews. And I, I give code reviews and get code reviews still. But essentially, when you're first starting, when a developer is first starting out, they are following guides, they're janking stuff together, and it might work, but a code review can quickly accelerate where they need to optimize. So maybe they're really good at the setup pro- at the scaffolding process of their React application. Maybe they're maybe someone's really good at that, but they just can't wrap their head around when to create a component. Okay, so they just have a bunch of repeated code in their in their code. A decent developer that's already worked in the industry will probably be able to point that out really quickly for them. Whereas the person that's just starting out, the junior developer won't have any idea that that's a problem until they get into the workforce and, you know, someone will point that out to them, right? When they're having to rewrite code 15 times, like copy paste code 15 times into the same file, they're going to realize that, Hey, something can go wrong here. So accelerating the, how you're, writing code more efficiently, code review, there's nothing better than code reviews for that. So being open to having someone critique your code as a, as a junior developer and as a developer that's looking to help other juniors, being able to go in and actually provide a code review. And we all know these can take time depending on how big the code is. Like if you're code reviewing an entire project, that's really tough. And I would not recommend people do that or like, a you know, promote not promote that, but go in with that mindset of like, hey, I'm going to code review your entire, you know, 100 page React project. A developer just, you, that's going to overwhelm you and you're not going to be able to provide a good enough value. You might be able to skim through it and provide some thoughts, but realistically, it's not going to get that. Rather than that, if you can go in and go through a couple of components that they've created, maybe a page and provide actual detailed review of those things, they could then take that review and apply it to the rest of their project. And that's more that's more important and actually been more beneficial for the developer to be able to take feedback on one part and apply it to other parts of the project that haven't been looked at yet. Okay, so as a developer that's looking to code review, look for smaller chunks of code to review as a developer that's looking for a code review, look to submit smaller chunks to have a more success, right? And submitting these things, again, it can be done in a million different ways, but a lot of times it's going to be done on a more personal level in a Discord community, uh, 
or in Slack or whatever, however many, whatever community you find that has developers that have both our junior level and senior level, right? And as a junior developer, don't hesitate to actually participate in code reviews yourself, right? If you find something that, hey, you think you can be done better, submit that, like tell the person that submitted a code review because it'll help. The code review thing is also it, it, like code reviews kind of sound almost like a bad word to me because it's like, oh, like someone's going to come in and like review my stuff and like they're going to kind of get mad or whatever. But it's really crucial in coding. But then the I guess the idea behind code reviews applies to a lot of other industries as well. So and, and I want to mention this because obviously people transition around different tech jobs. So I had a tech job uh, where I worked as a network administrator. Uh, not even a network administrator. It was uh, like a network operator, I suppose. And like uh, we just did work with like Cisco routers and stuff like that. And when we when we wanted to uh, do a change, even if the person was a professional that had been in the industry for 10 years, it literally was like one of the steps was write your configuration that you're going to be putting into this router or the switch or whatever appliance you're doing it on. Send it out to the team and the team will say, you know, yes or no or like, hey. This is going to mess with my thing. And it isn't. So like to be clear, it's not just a critique, although it is a critique, but it's also a check where it's like, hang on, I'm I'm about to up the security on this. This configuration that is going to work today is not going to work tomorrow when I update the firewall or something like that. And so I understand under the mentorship uh, sort of flag, I guess, maybe you're not working with them. But it's good to get used to code reviews to improve your skills. But in the industry, you might be on a team where you put out code reviews or put out again, like if you transition to networking or you transition to a bunch of other places, it's literally almost like a team building exercise or maybe not even team building. It's like team awareness where people are like, okay, this guy's getting rid of this variable. I can't use that in my future, in my future calls or whatever. It goes a step further. So code reviews can seem grueling or they always, they all, to me, they always seem like the thing I don't want to do, but they do apply to other areas when you're in a team. That's 100% correct. Uh, most of any code that I've written in the past three years has been reviewed, like production code, I want to say. Code that I've written that's actually gone to production has been reviewed because of this exact reason. Because you could be the best developer ever, and I'm not in any way, shape, or form, but you could be. And you could still miss something down the line. You can miss something that you didn't even think about because another developer has worked on that. And I always promote the fact that like, even if you're a junior developer joining a new team, a junior developer should be made to do some code reviews. Now, obviously they need to be maybe even an over, over the shoulder coding review with, with another developer just to show them the process. Maybe down, maybe like in a couple months after they join the team, not right away, something like that. There's, there should be some sort of ramp up process to that point. But as they get more comfortable, they should definitely be starting to review even the senior developer's code. Because first of all, you can learn way more. Second of all, you may find something that the senior developer missed. It's possible 100% because they're working on something completely isolated and they just didn't think of that. And maybe you're newer in the industry and you know of a different way to do it. You shouldn't well, the, hesitate to provide your insight. Well, the senior dev too, like you're saying, works in a silo. Sorry to interrupt, but like that works in a silo. They might have been working on this project for three months and you might re recognize, hang on a second, we don't do API calls like that anymore because our API provider, whatever, if it's like some sort of third party thing, has changed their rules. And so the, the, the senior dev might be like, you know, so into meetings and everything else that they're not checking every day on like what the API provider is doing. And so then you might be like, hey, uh, on, and you're not even like trying to correct him. Like, Hey, on my stuff, I was told to do API calls like this. Like, is that, is that, is that okay? Like, 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 is yours still work? Like, and then if, if they're like, yes, we can do it both ways. Great. You learn something. If it's no, then it's like, okay, great. Now that glitch is not going to happen on the site. Absolutely. Exactly. So really important code reviews are key. Don't be afraid to receive them. Don't be afraid to give them. Next thing here, portfolio reviews. So portfolios are really important in our industry right now. Uh, similar to like artistic industries and stuff like that, a lot of times a, a degree in development does not give you much of a foot in the door as much as a, a portfolio of what you've already done with open accessible code through a GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket repo 
can do. Okay. Because our industry, like the education is fine. Like you can go through a computer science program, computer engineering program, or just like a boot camp or whatever. That does not prove that you can be a developer. A developer needs to be able to, like I said, solve problems, even smaller ones. And if you can prove that in a portfolio, then you have a leg up on a lot of people in the industry. Now, the problem that we're going to be talking about right now is the fact that a lot of portfolio, most developers already create a portfolio. There's just not a lot of variation with them. They're sometimes just wrong. Like you're, you have very, uh, maybe your design is really bad or maybe your um, just the code that you've written and you've open sourced is just not clean enough to be included in a portfolio. But as a junior developer, you don't know that. You don't know that. So you're going to put out whatever you can put out and that's what you should do and hope that it gets you the job. As a developer working in the industry, we can go in and help these juniors by looking at their portfolio and seeing where we would flag them. Put your interviewer hat on, right? And if you were looking at other people's portfolios during the interview, before the interview process, before even giving an interview, who would you say yes to and who would you say no to? The people that you would say no to, make sure that you can explain why. Because if you explain why to them, they can improve that and they can fix that. If they don't, it's not on you. That's fine. But if you can explain their issues, that's going to help them immensely. Okay. And again, portfolio reviews, just like code reviews, can be done in Discord communities, can be done on Twitter. I see them all the time on Twitch nowadays where people just go in and just do a bunch of portfolio reviews and ask for people to submit and they'll do them live. Like there's many different ways you can approach that. But it's something that can directly help someone get a job because portfolios are really, really key. Next thing here, community participation, right? Urge community participation, create communities, be part of communities. Because again, if, if let's say that there's a junior developer community out there, if it's all junior developers, that's great. That could have its value. But if there is no senior developer or intermediate developer or just staff developer, whatever, in that community, they it's not going to be as valuable. So if we're just in our own silos as developers and we're not participating in the uh, the community out there, it's not helping anyone. Whereas if you just go in there and just point people in the right direction, like a lot of people, if you like, if you think you can't answer questions, you're wrong, because a lot of people are asking very basic questions. Because it's tough to even come up with the right question to ask at the start. And you you forget that as a developer that's been working in industry for a while. So if you can just reframe their question for them or answer a simple question here and there, that's going to help a ton. And again, it's going to benefit you, I guarantee you, just as much as them. Because again, teaching someone or answering questions is going to solidify your knowledge. That's one thing. The next thing is that just establishing those connections. Who knows Six months down the line, that developer could get a job. You could be out of a job and they could be hiring. Like establishing connections in the community, regardless of where your position is as a developer, is going to help you 100%. I can guarantee you. So community participation, in my opinion, is extremely key in this industry right now. It's a competitive industry. Stuff's hitting the fan. Like I said in the landscape, we need to be ready to shift, move jobs, everything. There's something here too. Uh, it's almost like an introvert's guide to community participation. So like, I, you know, I, I should probably engage more in our discord and stuff like that. But the number one thing I will, and I did do, uh, in the earlier days was I started getting involved with sort of smaller communities and I don't mean sort of public communities. I mean, I emailed smaller sites and I was like, Hey, like I wouldn't mind writing for your writing for your site. I have experience with BlackBerry devices. I have experience with this and that and the other thing. This was a number of years ago, and I still will chat with people from those experiences to this day. And that's like a smaller, more, you know, I'm not, I'm not on Discord talking to hundreds of people and whatever. It's like I'm working almost like with a little team and I'm not being paid to do this, but it's something that, you know, oh, this person has this, this expertise. This person has this expertise. This person has this. Okay. I have those people kind of you know, in my back pocket to talk to. And I could be like, oh, hey, man, like, you know, how's it going? Uh, you know, I have this problem, blah, blah, blah. Because the thing with tech is tech is so crazy and so all over the place all the time. Even from my writing days for them years ago, it's like the smartphone landscape has completely changed. And that wasn't that long ago that I was writing for that site. The 
web space has completely changed since then as well. Now we're talking about web three and this and that. And so it's good to sort of have a, uh, a good spread of people. And obviously it, 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 it's great to have like a big community on Twitter. But if you're just not at that point where you're like, man, I socially do not want to do this. You can still expand your contact base by kind of trying to insert yourself into these sort of smaller projects and being like, hey, you know, there's five or six people on this team. I wouldn't mind contributing to your site. I wouldn't mind contributing a video here and there or whatever. Would that be possible for me to do that? That includes something like a smaller open source project as well. Absolutely. I mean, open source develop open source in general is something I actually didn't put on this list is something that can get you a job directly. And if you're a junior developer looking to get into the industry, if you can prove yourself in an open source project, that's something that's a huge step up. Now, having said that, it's not as easy as I say it, like being able to go into open source on your own without anyone helping you and figuring out how to submit it submit a pull request and help like actually contributing useful code to it is not as easy as it seems. <laughs> like you have to be able to understand the code that you're altering and submitting to. I think you should try it. Everyone should try it. Everyone should try small things like contributing to documentation. Everyone should try bigger things that are heavier, like a heavier lift, finding an issue and trying to solve it and submitting a pull request to solve that issue. That's all great. But just I want to set expectations that it's not easy in any way, shape, or form. But if you can do it, it will greatly help you. Having said that, Matt mentioned our Discord. And I feel really bad because I haven't been there in probably months, right? Like there's been a lot of stuff going on around like new contracts, new stuff, uh, stu- like family things. And I'm going to make a commitment now to at least check it once a week. So I, as Matt was talking about the Discord, I actually went in there and replied for the first time in a while. Uh, cause I wanted to set that up. It was a cover up. It was a damn, it was a, it was a reply that covered up his inactivity. I swear. Correct. Correct. And I'm going to start to go back in there and start replying. So if you are a junior developer or a senior developer or whatever, we will have a link to our discord in the show notes. Come join, participate in the chats. We will have, I think we're going to create a code reviews, uh, channel. Let's do that, Matt. And everything else is probably already in there as feedback channel, everything. So. We're going to have all, all of what we were talking about in our Discord. Hopefully, we can get it get back to being more active and uh, helping out the community from that point. Uh, there is or was a, a Code Reviews channel as well. Uh, we did like a major renovation earlier in the year, so I'm not sure where yeah, that there is, is a currently. Code review channel. There is a Code Review channel. Perfect. Yep. I haven't used it, so it was just requested. I made it, and that's why I didn't know it was there. But Yep. Let's, let's start using it, at least for me. Okay, next thing here is urge developers to create. Uh, as a developer in the industry, you have to start to acknowledge that it's very competitive and a way to kind of break into the industry is to set yourself apart by creating something, like making yourself stand out from the crowd. And one way to do that is to create blogs, participate in social media. So again, go on Twitter, find the tech Twitter community, participate in the tech Twitter community, grow an audience, or just participate, just talk to other developers that are in, that are actually working and try to connect with them. You can also create videos as you're learning. I think a lot of people don't understand that as you're learning, you have a lot of value to give because you have a completely fresh perspective on the topic. So when a teacher creates a course they're creating it from a view of a teacher that's already been in the industry for a while. The terminology that they use, the methods that they use, the, the things that they skip are going to be not understood by them. Whereas a new developer that's just gone and learned HTML and CSS is going to have a completely different perspective. So you creating a, hey, this is how I learned HTML and CSS video, even though there are a million of them out there can actually help someone that's just starting to learn that concept as well. And it goes for JavaScript. As you, as you learn, you can create as much content as you can possibly fit into your time frame. And trust me, it's going to help someone. And at worst case, even if no one sees it, it's going to be something that you can talk about in an interview, talk about on your portfolio. It's going to set you apart. So it's important to create as you're learning. Is it 
the be all end all, is it something that's going to get you a job 100% guarantee? Absolutely not. It's just a supplement to that. It's not something that you should rely on, but it's something that you should maybe schedule a couple hours a week that you can just sit down and create something, write a blog about your journey, participate in the 100 days of code hashtag on Twitter, uh, find the Discord communities and create stuff there, whatever. There's a million different ways to create. I think we have episodes on this as well. Maybe we'll link them in the show notes. Well, I was going to say too that, like, you know, we, we obviously promote creating as we just did. And, and like, you, like you said, I'm pretty sure we have some episodes about it, but it, this part also sucks. And, uh, you know, it just sucks because if you kind of think about it this way, it's like when you're first getting started, uh, or even if you're just learning a new topic, like I'm learning Svelte and I'm like knocking the rest off, like I said, my JavaScript. And I'm sitting there, you know, trying to write up a code pen or trying to write up my Svelte project. And by the end of the day, or by the end of like the, the the session that I've planned with one of these projects, I'm I'm like bloody tired and I'm like, man, I don't want to do this. And then the next day I want to be prepped to do another session. And so I don't want to tire myself out by by talking or writing about what I did the day before. And that's the part that sucks is like, you know, content creation sounds like it's easy, like it isn't rocket science, just writing up a blog and doing this and that. There's obviously finesse to it. I'm not saying it's like that easy, but I'm saying it's literally easy to start a blog now. You can like sign up for like a hash node account and like just randomly start writing. And you could literally write like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine as your as your blog content if you really wanted to. So it's technically easy from a technical perspective, but it's it's not easy from a mentality perspective, at least that's one of my biggest hurdles personally, is that it's just like, oh my God, like now I have to like tweet about this. And then you, then I start writing it. And I'm like, man, this tweet kind of sucks. I need a graphic. You, you like make a quick graphic because you want to be done for the day. And then you're like, this graphic sucks and I'm going to look an idiot, <laughs> you know? And, and it is one of the bigger hurdles. And I would imagine it's even bigger when everything is new to you. And by the end of the day, you're just like, well, Mike, you and I, like there would be some days where you and I could, could barely talk. Like we'd go out with friends after working all day and we'd just be like, they'd be like, hi, I was like, all right. And it's just like, cause you're just exhausted. You're mentally done. Yeah. Development work, learning development is absolutely mentally exhausting. And I want to be clear on this, that it's not a requirement to get a job that you have to create content. Okay. Like I said before, community participation, portfolio, like all the other stuff that we're talking about. There, none of these are requirements, but if you can pick a few of these things, it's going to help you. If you can get your portfolio done and reviewed, if you can participate in communities, that's going to help you. Okay. This is, I'm talking to junior developers right now, not the, uh, people that are working. But regardless, if you can find a content creation mechanism, maybe you're a creative person. Okay. Let's say that you like to paint. You like art. And you're learning CSS. You can create really cool things with CSS and share them. If you can find a way to have fun and in, or at least tolerate the content creation process and not make it like a job, quote unquote, you're going to have way more chance of success. One of these things will not work. So you, you probably maybe won't like blog writing. Okay. You don't like it. Okay. That's fine. Maybe you like sharing CSS art on, on Twitter. That is a viable option. Maybe you like making 30-second videos on different JavaScript properties. If you like it, do it. Find something that you like and try to do it. If you don't like anything, that's fine. Okay, move on to the other stuff. It's okay. You don't have to be a content creator. Not everyone can be a content creator. It's exhausting. That that is a an interesting way to look at it because I know that some people will you know not touch a blog they won't touch social or they won't touch like Twitter let's say but they'll just post on Instagram for example like that's all they do they post on Instagram and like they almost write a blog post as their caption and it's like to them I would imagine it's maybe something like maybe maybe they're not like a photography fan but it's like they want to write just something really quick, but they just want to like quickly post it and they'll just take a picture to like, like here, here's a screenshot of my work. Here's a, like a micro blog post that I didn't think was worthy of say like a hash note thing where it's only a couple paragraphs, but on Instagram, there's a place for, for captions like that because like that would be considered a long caption there. And so it's like, 
you know, bit of time management maybe went into it. Maybe that's just their style, whatever the reasoning, but just, you know, off the top of my head, the reasoning to do that is because it's like, Hey, you know, I can write for an audience that is going to listen. Uh, I do know a few people on Instagram that just do, um, document their journey. Like, Hey, I'm working on this. They just take a quick picture and it's not about the picture. It's literally people go into the caption. They read the whole caption and then they write comments on that. And it's like a perfect little thing for Instagram because this person, you know, quickly, maybe at the end of the night wants to write it, but they don't want to pull out the hash. No, they don't want to have the like, mess with the open graph images and make sure it's SEO and get the headings right. And this and that it's just like to them, their content creation, their creative side said micro posts that are longer than tweets, but not as long as blog posts, let's say, or not as long as many blog posts is what I want to do. Instagram's the place. And you could do that in so many other places. Some people are great at talking to the camera. They don't want to write. All right, sweet. I'll do that on TikTok. Oh, TikTok's not long enough for my videos. I'll do YouTube. And they don't have to do four, five, six, seven, eight other different services. They can just like solely focus on that. And that works for them. And many of those people that I see have big followings and they're nowhere else. They're on Instagram and they're nowhere else. Absolutely. 100%. Now, moving on, I want to shift a little bit from like the, hey, content creation, all that stuff to more of the job side of things. Okay. So one of the first things that happened when I posted, hey, how can we help junior developers on Twitter was I got a post saying, give them a job. Right. That was the, one of the first posts I got. And I kind of chuckled at it. But having said that, I realized that, hey, like, that's true. Like, if I can find a job for them, obviously, that's the best and most efficient way to help a junior developer. Right. So if you can, you're, you're in a company and you're trying to help junior developers, one of the best things you can do is kind of evangelize for them. A lot of times, and I've been in many companies where this is the kind of the policy, they don't really hire juniors or they don't, they quote unquote hire juniors, but it's not really a junior they're looking for. They're looking for someone that can, that's already kind of worked in the industry for three years and is able to take a task from start to finish on their own. In my opinion, that's not a junior developer. A junior developer is someone that came out of a boot camp that has a few projects under their belt. They've worked on stuff. They can solve a few things, but they need to be handheld. Okay. That's not what most companies are looking for, but shouldn't it be like, shouldn't that be what companies look for? Because that's who you can take and mold into what you need them to be. Hiring a developer that's already done a, a, like 10 or 15 different projects with different companies, you're hiring someone that's going to finish a project for you. Okay. But if you're hire a junior developer, you can mold them into a developer that you need on your team, not for the next three months, but maybe for the next four years. I think this is where we're failing as an industry, like as a whole. There's a ton of turnover in our industry, okay? There's a lot of reasons for that. One of those reasons is that we're just, we're not promoting actually growing in a company. We're promoting project-based hiring and just then sometimes just letting people go after a project is done after like a couple months. That happens a lot or three months or four months, whatever. We need to be thinking like our sal like the salaries numbers are really, really high, right? And everyone keeps switching jobs all the time, all the time. But the problem is no one's getting homegrown talent. Like no one's hiring lower salary developers that are just starting out and trying to mold them into these monolith developers that they're hiring for ridiculous amounts of money. It doesn't make sense to me because you can take someone and you can obviously have a couple seniors and then have a program in place that can help juniors actually level up to their level. Have it so that a senior will at least help them once a week, right? You have one-on-one -on -one sessions with your senior developers. Have different systems in place for them to grow in the company and then have a pipeline of juniors that you're feeding into your company. You could have three juniors for the price of one senior sometimes. That's true. And a lot of times, okay, it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. But if you can, if you can have that pipeline working and you can always have juniors coming in and evolving into higher developers. Now, obviously some will leave, but the turn, turnover is turnover. If we can lower the turnover a little bit and have homegrown talent in companies, it's going to benefit everyone because almost every legacy company that I've joined 
has like zero knowledge of the code base that, that they did not create because they have such high turnover. Wouldn't it be nice if you had developers stick around to the longevity of the code base that they're writing so that they have domain-based knowledge in the stuff that they've written themselves and they can onboard other developers to have better knowledge of that code base rather than having people reverse engineer every freaking system that has been built. That's that's what I'm kind of trying to evangelize for. And the only way to do that from my eye is to have a good pipeline of junior developers. So really, this is what the episode is kind of coming to is that I want to plant this seed in every hiring manager and every developer that is looking to hire's mind of like, how do we adjust our team's philosophy that can accommodate the hiring of someone that doesn't have the skills that we need to start right now? How can we make it so that we can provide systems for them to succeed and evolve and make them a good developer in a time span of like three to six months rather than expecting them to perform on the second day that they're there? Now, there are, I want to be clear about this as well. There are absolutely jobs out there that have this system in place. I've talked to people. I've watched videos about that. There are certain companies that take this very seriously. And I guarantee that they are succeeding in their efforts if they are actually taking this seriously. Because it's just, if you have a application that needs consistent development, if you're constantly losing your domain-based experts, it's going to be a challenge to keep that going without janky-ass, like, rickety code going up. One of the things that's almost like unseen or maybe it's not unseen, but it, it, it sort of lends itself to you're being molded by the company because like there's almost like an un, I guess it would be unseen unheard sort of mentality that some companies have. Like when they, when they uh, train people, uh, when those, when, when there's like, when there is someone that's been there for a long time, like those people do think a bit different. And what I mean by that is I can explain it. So we learned uh, windows server in school. And then I went off to work uh, in one of our co-ops, one of our co-op placements for school. And we use Windows Server. We also use Linux. And I had been, you know, so in the Windows ecosystem in my personal life, then in my school life, then in my professional life that like I really did not take a liking to the Linux side. I more so took a liking to the Windows side. And the reason why I mention this is because it's because like, when Windows has a problem, even to this day, whether it's Windows Server, whether it's Windows, I generally kind of know where to look now. It's like an, it's almost like a, like another sense. Like I have like a Windows sense or a Microsoft sense where I'm like, oh, it's probably in that settings menu. Oh, maybe there's a settings menu somewhere here. Oh, if it's not showing up, maybe it's in the older control panel. Like it's just like I, I can almost like speak Microsoft, even though there isn't a Microsoft language. It's like another thought. And if you, if you like invest in a junior dev and invest in somebody, and then they stay with you from junior through senior through like retirement through like maybe a consult consulting you after they've retired and they're doing it part time or something like they, they they speak Microsoft. It's an un like said like no one says like, are you a Microsoft speaker? Like no one says that. But it's like they generally understand how the company works. They know all the little nuances. They've seen the changes. They know, OK, like they've been there for everything. And so like they're valuable in that way where you can predict how much work you're going to get out of them at what value uh, they, they're, they're super consistent. They know how to deal with things that come up in the Microsoft way, let's say that if, if they're working on Microsoft and it, and it sucks that, I mean, I don't know about you, Mike, but when we were in high school, like we were told the career is dead. Don't try to get a career, just get a job and keep, keep hopping. And we were literally told that it's like the career is dead. Your parents are in a career. They're the last generation or a generation after them, whatever, whenever, whenever the cutoff of generations is, um, you know, your parents are the one of the last in careers. And if they get fired or laid off or something from their career, they enter the job market and the job market is you just hop, 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 hop. It's almost like the gig economy, although the gig economy is something else. But it's like hop, 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 moving around, moving around, moving around. That's what they taught us to be. But then no one speaks Microsoft anymore. No one speaks like Lenovo. No one speaks, you know, name a company. No one speaks Facebook. And 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 I wonder how much value companies are getting from people like is it great like who's who's winning here is there a winner in this sort of jumping around economy is it the developer who's like hopping all over the place to get better raises but 
would Microsoft be better off offering a competitive rate to keep somebody like should they be trying to keep somebody in there forever but then like who's losing in that transaction is there a loser and i wonder if it's one of these things where it's so complex almost like the global trade economy where it's like yes there's experts but it's so complex that it's really impossible to tell exactly what's going to happen and it's impossible to tell like who's the winner who's the loser in the career economy i guess you could say Versus the hopping around, hopping around different jobs economy. There's That's, pros and cons to each. Who's the winner? Who's the loser? Is there a winner and loser? I think there are some, and so, like it's really difficult. This is the issue. Like you, like you said, we were taught that job hopping is the norm now, and it is the norm. Like I've seen it in every, oh for sure, yeah, in every position I've ever been in. Is there's a lot of job hopping. I'm doing job hopping, but the reality is, is that you can't job hop forever. Otherwise, it's going to be it's going to be a detriment to your career at some point in time because at some point you want to retire. And if you don't have any, you know, seniority anywhere, it's going to be a challenge, right? So at some point, I think that the advice that I've been hearing given now is you job hop your first like three jobs and then you try to stick it out for a while at the third or fourth one, right? So maybe things are like a hybrid now. Things are getting to be a little bit hybrid, but it's mostly a hybrid because of the fact that we're just not developing a pipeline. It, it, I'm speaking only of the development sphere right now. We're not developing this like learning pipeline of developers as well as we should. Right now, how it works is that like you start usually at a lower price point, like a really low, uh, not really low, but like, you know, regular salary and the only way to get that level up is if you are succeed at that job enough to build up your resume. Mm-hmm. Usually you're put into like survive by fire mode without too much mentorship. If you succeed like that and you're not weeded out, you are now elevated to the status of, Hey, I succeeded in tech for two years. Okay. It's on your resume. Then you are much more valuable to then go to the next company to get even less mentorship but succeed there hopefully and again you do the same thing two or three more two or three more times there's just isn't that like thought of hey maybe we should just actually like have a path forward for developers to get to the point where they don't need to leave us we can teach them our knowledge like from from our senior developers we can set aside time we can teach them we can get them to a point and it then Maybe it, it's not just the crazy, like, self-starter developer that's going to be successful. It's going to be the regular developer that maybe needs a little bit of hand-holding that will be successful. Therefore, you're propagating more developers that are successful in the industry and lowering those crazy salaries. Like, I, I hesitate to say that because obviously I'm benefiting from the crazy salaries. But the reality is, is that there's no way that we can continue as an industry – where, I mean, we know that we can't because it's already happening where the salaries are starting to drop. But like, but is, we were, is that you know, due to the industry or is, and we might not have the answer here, but is that due to the industry or is that due to the people? Like, for example, one of the benefits of going to a place and staying there for a long time is you start getting onto their company benefits, literally like their health benefits, their, uh, whatever, eye, dental, drugs, all that stuff, like for, for prescriptions, though, all those type of things. You, you, you get all, you get the, yeah, those benefits. You get additional holidays. Like you get, you know, you're, I'm no longer only have two weeks. I have six weeks and stuff like that. Sort of like the traditional way of getting more holidays in a year. And then you also get into, if they have any of this, of course, then you can also get into their company pension plan if they have one. And, the, and maybe they do a thing where it's like, if I put a hundred dollars in, they also put a hundred dollars in, they match it. And then it like grows through some sort of mutual funder, whoever manages the retirement, however it works in your country or whatever. That's one of the benefits, generally speaking, of a career where it's like you, your job gets cushy because you you master it. It gets easy and you just sort of like get surrounded by things that will help you. You know, like here, I got my pension set up. It's good. I got my health benefits. That's good. I got, you know, and, and you kind of get that. But like who's winning or losing here? Because you could think like, hey, I could just get my own prescription drug plan and let's say that's going to cost me 300 a month or something that's going to cost me 300 a month well you know what i'll get that and i'll keep job hopping 
and I'm getting a raise of like $10,000 a year every time I job hop. Well, 300 a month does not add up to $10,000. So I'll remove, like I will pay out of pocket for it, but I'm actually going to make more in the end. And then I can take that additional raise that I get and make my own retirement. And then that my, my own retirement, if I do the math, maybe it will add up to better than what the estimated amount of retirement has in this like pre-built pension plan. Like what, like, so um, this is where that push and pull comes in, where it's like, who's winning where? Who's the like, who's the driving factor? It is like the career versus the job hop is a, is a very, very complex question. I mean, it comes down to money. I think that's a simple thing is it comes down to money. Mostly not all things mostly, but it's like, how much does peace of mind help people? And then it's like, well, peace of mind's great. Some people are more anxious than others. So maybe peace of mind's great for them. But there is a point in which it's like, well, hang on. Peace of mind here is costing me $9,000 a year because I didn't job hop. And I could have gotten $9,000 more or I could have got $10,000 more and then just paid out for these other things of with $1,000 of my own money. It does become a numbers game where you have to look at that. This is why people move physically move to different areas because they go, well, I can afford to live here. But the mortgages are $10,000. But I could just do my job remotely because I'm allowed to do that. I'll move to a place that costs me $1,000. I'm up $9,000 a month. What is that going to buy me? And so it like it, <laughs> it really is a complex problem of where's your office? Well, can I have a career if I if you demand me to be in the office? Now it's too much. It, it It's too expensive for me to live there. I'll get paid less, live somewhere else that's even less to work. Now I can, you know, and it's like this whole like web of questions that become more than this episode scope, <laughs> to be fair. But yeah, and I think that that's what's kind of making this a really complex problem to solve. Um, and again, the episode scope doesn't, isn't about solving that problem. I think just the focus that I want to kind of point out is if we can make it a little bit easier for junior developers to a get a job in the industry and b be onboarded properly and actually like learn in a good environment from the right engineers, it's going to benefit the industry as a whole because we're going to continuing the way we're going and making it almost impossible for junior developers to get in, right? Like making it so that they have to jump through a million different hoops. At the end of the day, what's going to happen if the industry doesn't catch up, right? Like if there's more demand than we can possibly solve for because all the junior developers just can't get in, like they can't get in and all the complex problems that we're trying to solve can't be done. So selfishly, yeah, it's going to drive my salary up, but unselfishly, it might destroy the industry at the end of the day. I don't know. I mean, it's it, it's the it's the never ending question, right? Because it's also like at that point, I mean, we saw a weird anomaly in the industry with COVID. It's like yeah. what you're saying is potentially a snowball effect that could culminate in another anomaly in the industry that is not pandemic driven. That is like industry driven or money driven or whatever. And then the industry will do something weird. It will. You know, let's say Microsoft might be like, okay, all of our developers that we hire, all our junior developers that we hire are going through our boot camp first. Like there's solutions to problems. You know what I mean? They're going through our boot camp to make them think like us, to make them understand our procedures and how we want things coded. Then when they get started, they're junior, but they're Microsoft junior developers. Then it might become something like that, where it's like the corporations are educating the people. Like I'm just making this up, but it's it's like – like a lot of the problems that we can identify in an industry do come down to, you know, some of them will just get squashed. Some of them will just go away as the industry changes and as tech changes. Other ones will culminate potentially if left unmaintained, let's say, and left to their own devices. It will culminate in a problem that may cause an anomaly within the industry where it will cause an upset where like you might get paid a bunch more. A junior developer might get paid less, but then they might also get educated for free. And then it's like, okay, well, hang on. And then it becomes this weird, again, it's <laughs> the web starting again, like already. Yes. Impossible to solve. But anyway, a problem that we all need to think about. I just want to plan it in everyone's heads. Hopefully we can get there. That's my I agree. Goal. 100%. Yeah. 
hopefully we can get there. But I think that's it uh, from my notes. Anything else you want to add, Matt? Uh, no, unless we want to talk about the web for another three hours. And <laughs> like, and I don't mean the web like the internet I'm talk- or the internet or uh, like websites or anything. I'm talking literally like the web of like, oh, hang on. So I'm in this area. I got this interest rate. <laughs> like, no, we're not going to we're not going to open up that can of worms. But. We are going to thank our three dollar tier patrons. Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com. Tim from the Web Hacker on the webhacker.com. Bib Hashdash from Nine Block Media on nineblockmedia.com. Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com. Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca. Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se. Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeffrey Kale. And Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com. Feel free to leave a comment or review in the platform you just like to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.